0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
2: Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness Podcast. You heard about The Art of War, and it sounded pretty cool. So you picked up a copy to read. But you found that, beyond a few of its famous maxims, a lot of this text attributed to the ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu was hard to understand, much less incorporated into your life. My guest offers a tripartite framework that can help you get a lot more out of The Art of War. His name is Jim Gimian, and he's an editor of one of the text translations, as well as the co-author of The Rules of Victory, How to Transform Chaos and Conflict, Strategies from the Art of War. Today on the show, Jim argues that The Art of War is a holistic, interconnected text that's about how to approach conflict and obstacles in a holistic, interconnected way. Underlying this approach are three dynamics, heaven, earth, and general, which correspond to view, practice, and action. Jim and I talk about the importance of constantly orienting and reorienting yourself to an ever-changing world, working with the sure or energy in the landscape you're navigating, using action to further refine your perspective, and more. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is All Art of War. All right, Jim Gimian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brett. Thanks for inviting me. Good to talk to you. So, you co-authored a book called "The Rules of Victory: How to Transform Chaos and Conflict." And this is basically you and your co-author have taken the things you talk about in your consulting work, leadership consulting, about lessons from Sun Tzu's "The Art of War." I'm curious, how did you end up teaching leadership programs based on this Chinese text of war strategy?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It's it's a it's a long story. And I'll give away a little bit of my age here. You know, it really started, you know, like a lot of things we discover that are helpful and valuable in our lives. It started with an experience of being disappointed and being disillusioned and having a feeling that, you know, things should be better than this. And that happened to me in a number of different areas simultaneously. And it goes back to the years I was in college. I was at Stanford in the late 60s. And, you know, it was a great small college at that point with a great reputation. And I went full of pep and looking to become one of the great leaders, as everybody does at 17. It was possible in those days to get to know your professors very well, which I did. They were arguably the leaders in their field. And part of getting to know them is you get invited to their houses and meet their families and observe close in. And what became evident really quickly is there was no transfer between the wisdom that they attained as their big heroes in their field of expertise and the way they treated their family at home. And I I just thought, I don't think I want to wind up where this road leads. And, you know, this was also the time, a tremendous amount of disruption and disillusionment and disintegration of of structures in our society in the late 60s, anti-war, civil rights, counterculture, psychedelic era. And you know, I was able to witness firsthand the anti-war movement very close up. And it soon became clear that neither side really had any kind of insight into how to overcome aggression. And, you know, as a young guy who kind of reverted to force and aggression to solve my problems, I just, again, saw there was no real no real insight. So, the final, I think, part of it was, you know, this was the psychedelic era, and there were opportunities to take classes in, you know, using hallucinogens to understand more about your mind. And I, I took a couple of those classes, speaking metaphorically here, of course, and it was tremendously eye-opening. You know, it, it showed that reality was not something that was fixed. And more than that, my version of reality wasn't always the, the only one. So those kind of propelled me out of the college scene and really took me into the art of war, among other things, in the early 70s. And that started me on a a long course. I found a a group of friends and colleagues, other men who were studying it. So we kind of had a, a men's group over a number of years. And little by little, you know, we saw that there was a lot of profundity that was not coming through in these older translations. So at the time, I had a good friend who was doing his PhD in Asian Studies at UC Berkeley. So I said to him, you know, one day I said, so look, man, there's a lot of stuff in here that these other translations aren't bringing out. Let's do a translation with the men's group and you. And he looked at me without any hesitation and he said, you're crazy. We can't do that. So I left that conversation kind of with my my tail between my legs. I went back to the men's group and a couple of years later, I was at a conference. I was standing in the lunch line, and this friend, this guy who's just finished his degree in Asian studies and got a job at Bowdoin College, butts into the line. He looks at me, and he says, okay, Jim, I'm ready. So I say, well, ready for what? And he says, you know, translate the art of war. And without skipping a beat, I looked at him and he said, we can't do that. That's crazy. Well, we did. We started. And we started very simply. We took the parts of the text that really were most meaningful for us, often the sort of maxims or slogans that everybody knows, and we translated those. And little by little, they showed that there was a lot of profundity in those parts that were more opaque and that we didn't really make a connection to. Well, before too long, we had the whole thing translated. We submitted it to publishers, signed a contract, and now, you know, sold over a million copies uh, in 11 languages, and and that is called The Art of War, the Denma Translation. That was the first book, which has essays and a commentary that we wrote on the lines. So when that came out, I got asked to teach. People were saying, this is great stuff, but how do I actually do it in my life and in my leadership capacity? So I responded to those requests over five or seven years, and the rules of victory is an attempt to summarize what I learned in responding to those people who asked the question, you know, how can I do this in my life? So, you know, it's been a long journey. It's never been like a a franchise or a full-time gig, but it's been constant. It's been continuous and kind of spread by natural connections. People like you who, you know, somehow connected to the book, saw some insights there that they thought, would be helpful for them and had a genuine connection to it. And that led me to, you know, more work. Now that I'm kind of scaling down my work in the nonprofit sector, I'm able to engage more with the teaching and the coaching around the art of war. And it now leads me to this conversation with you. So the art of
2: war, I think it's a book that really, I think young men, I remember in high school, I picked up a copy from Barnes & Noble, thinking that would provide some sort of insight on how to be effective and conquer the world. And as you said, I think as a young man, I was really drawn to those maxims or slogans. But what I hope this conversation does is it susses out and really fleshes out that bigger view, the, the profundity that you were talking about. Before we do, let's talk about The Art of War itself, the history of it. It was authored, or the author you often see there is this guy named Sun Tzu. Who was Sun Tzu? Was it a real person? More than one person? It's kind of like asking who was Homer, you know, who,
1: was, who wrote the Odyssey? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, by way of background, the art of war comes to us from what's called the Warring States period of China, roughly speaking, 500 to 200 BC. And you know, at the start of this period, what we know as China on the mainland was maybe 75 or more small kingdoms and fiefdoms spending a lot of time either repelling invasions from the north mostly or, you know, trying to take over each other. So there was a lot of ongoing battles between them. And over some time, it sort of settled into about 15 larger kingdoms. And at the start of this time, there were no standing armies. If a king wanted to declare war, he challenged the opposing king, to a kind of almost a dance in decked-out chariots, and someone would be declared the winner, and that's how they'd take over the, the adjoining kingdom. But little by little, this need to develop standing armies, when the king wanted to go to war, the king would conscript farm workers, and these were largely untrained, ignorant young men, and the king would hire a mercenary general. And the role of this mercenary general was uh, by mercenary meaning he might work for one kingdom one campaign and another kingdom the next but what this mercenary king had to do was to take this band of ignorant farm boys and train them as an army and largely what we come to to know as the art of war now is the means by which the mercenary general did that the sunzi we refer to the text as the sunzi because It is a body of work that probably emerged over several generations during this period. Scholars themselves are mixed on the issue of, was there a real historical character? Some say yes, some say maybe, some say no. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you from our point of view, this represents a kind of a lineage, a conversation that went on over that period. And from our point of view, has continued to this day. Because if you read the literature, you will see not just the text itself, these 13 scant chapters that are left, but oodles of commentaries by military leaders across the centuries who are joining in the conversation. So when we do a workshop, most often in a corporate setting, we actually describe this as continuing that conversation. We're grappling with these same issues of How does one deal more effectively with conflict that's all around us in, you know, human existence? How can we do that better? What, what means, what views, what methods lead to a more successful engagement with conflict?
2: So it was written, kind of came about and during the warring states period. And because of that, that shapes the strategies or the insights that you find in the art of war. So it's a period where there's lots of different kingdoms and they're constantly jockeying for position. One guy could be in charge for a little bit, then another guy. So it's very uncertain. Conflict was always happening and that shapes what we get in the art of war.
1: And what does that remind you of? Is that a description of anything else? Uh, yeah, today. In modern day? I mean, yeah, today. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, someone who
2: owns it, who's a business that's owner. Right. You're competing. It's constantly shifting. Guys who were on top, you know, five years ago, can be out of business today.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why the lessons and the methodologies that were honed over hundreds of years in that setting in China are so applicable and valuable because it emerged in a time very similar to ours. And so the view, the elements that created successful and skillful techniques lead to the same now, the ability to respond to uncertainty, to be able to shift quickly, to respond to the changes. And I think one element that we emphasize is that during that time in China, the worldview was that the world was not separate entities, but it was one interconnected, interdependent, constantly changing whole thing. And that's another way in which our view has shifted over the last 40 or 50 years. We used to see the world as individual things that we could act upon. Well, as things got more complex, as the whole uncertainty and the emergence of complexity as a kind of foremost way of looking at the world took over our view... It didn't work anymore. People had to throw out their strategic plans because they became useless within you know, hours of being completed because everything had changed already. So the kinds of trainings of how to respond that, are, that come out of that time of seeing the world interconnected, now it's a little easier for us to see the interconnection. Social media, the internet, The weather patterns that are changing constantly, the way in which, you know, look at the supply chain issues in terms of interconnectivity. So we're able more genuinely to adopt a view that leads to skillful actions. It starts with that interconnected view. And we'll
2: talk more about that because that's a a big important point from The Art of War that you flesh out. But before we do, before we kind of flesh out this profundity you you want people to take away when they read your book, when you talk to people about The Art of War, because I think a lot of people have maybe read quips of it, what do you think a lot of people get wrong or miss when they read The Art of War?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I think we have to admit it's a it's a tough read. It can often be opaque and dense and difficult to understand it. It doesn't give up its treasures easily. So, and then, you know, a lot of people just dismiss it out of hand because it's all about war and warlike and people want to think they can deal with conflict in a whole different way. But I think in my view over the years, you know, the main thing is that as I just said, you know, the skillful actions actually arise from seeing the world as an interconnected whole. And the part that most people miss is that we as leaders are an integrated part of that interconnected whole. So the mistake people make is they think they can extract a few of the lessons and then use that to sort of get over on others. They're a part from that interconnected whole. They can act upon others, they can, you know, conquer and one-up others using these little tricks. And, you know, the the magic of those skills, which appear as tricks to people, comes from that view of interconnectedness. And if you don't have that, then there's a power in, in things like employing sure, this great sort of central view of Working with the energy that's in systems in the world it's just not it's just not possible It's like any kind of discipline where you see somebody dip in you know quickly learn some of the language and and then start teaching it. you kind of have a feeling that they've never genuinely learned the deeper discipline they've never really integrated the deeper lessons and therefore the the sort of maxims and the tricks don't have the profundity you, you can kind of feel it. So, I think you argued that to really understand the
2: art of war. You have to understand this framework. It's a tripart framework of heaven, earth, general. So, let's talk about heaven first. What does
1: heaven mean in the art of war? Well, I think, you know, the first thing to take note of is the heaven, earth, and general framework appears in a lot of places in Chinese philosophy and, and literature. And it appears in the very first chapter of the art of war as the middle of what the uh, first chapter calls the five. Uh, The first chapter is about kind of an overview and how to take assessments, how to actually look at a situation and see, well, do you stand a chance of dealing with conflict in a victorious way? What are the obstacles? What can you learn? So the five starts with the Tao, which is that sense of how things really are, the rules, the law. When you apply that to a situation, what the Tao means is is there coherence between the leader and the army, or the leader and the team, if it's a corporate setting? Is there is there a common culture, context, language, and view that gives cohesion and strength? Then it goes into number two is heaven, number three is earth, number four is the general, and then number five of the five is what's called methods. And that's the way a general actually organizes and orders and develops an army. So in the middle, you have these three. Heaven. Now, first, let's talk about how a general regards these three. For a general, heaven is the weather. Because if you're going to move an army, you have to know what conditions will you be facing that are weather related. Earth in a military setting is terrain. So what's the ground of the situation? What ground am I moving the army through? What will that require? And the general, the general is literally the person who's got to make the, the, the decisions joining the realities of the weather and the terrain. So, really, if you take a step back and apply this principle to any leadership setting, leaders basically face with the same situation. Heaven can be you know aspirations, the vision, what you have to accomplish, the future that you're trying to to bring about. Earth is the conditions of the situation, the realities of whatever the setting is. you know, if you're talking about taking a team, through a successful campaign to launch a new product, what's the ground of that? What's the competition? What's your capability to produce and market? What's your capability to actually, you know, successfully launch? And then, as the leader, you've got to assess how you have a goal, how you inevitably have obstacles or resistance. This notion of, um, you know, the earth, and then how do you move forward? So, you know, I think it's easiest to understand something like heaven or earth or general in the context of how it works as a system altogether. We're going
2: to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day, wear a custom made to measure suit. A lot of fun, and then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? So, if you want to try fast growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code manliness. Offers valid for a limited time, terms and conditions may apply. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. And now back to the show. And another way of looking at this framework is that heaven is view, earth is practice, and general is action. And it's interesting, this view part, right? So heaven, view, how we see the world. It reminded me of another military strategist, uh, John Boyd who developed oh, the, yeah. the OODA loop. Yeah. And the view part is the Orient, right? And he said the Orient right, part right. of this OODA loop thing of observe, Orient, decide, act. Orient is how you see the world. It's all these mental models and your culture could contribute right. to it. And the goals that you had going into a decision. And the Orient phase... That, just, that drove how you would act or make decisions. And then it, would, it was a cycle, it would just cycle through. You'd make an action, you would see what happened with your action, and then you'd put that back into the Orient phase and then decide again and act and over and over again. And Sun Tzu was basically saying the same thing thousands of years ago.
1: That's right. And, and of course, you know, if you're a student of John Boyd in the OODA loop, you know that he was a great student of the Art of War and integrated a lot of that into his development of fighter pilot training I mean, he's regarded as the founder of many of the basics of jet fighting strategy and action. And what you described is, is exactly what he, what he taught. And he also talked
2: about this idea, you have to see things holistically. Because like the stuff that he talked about was used later on in counterinsurgencies, right? And he said, in order to be an effective counterinsurgent, you, have to, you can't just think about the battles. You also have to think about, well, if we win this battle that might have some negative consequences. And so we have to do it in a certain way and we have to maybe win the hearts and minds of the people. That's another way you could go about it. And so I think this is a great segue to talk about Sun Tzu's idea of taking the whole. So we've been talking about that. When you're viewing the world, you want to see the world in a connected whole. But let's flesh out, where else do you see this idea of taking the whole in the art of war?
1: Well, you know, I think the best simplest way to understand that principle is if you look back at that mercenary general's challenge, his king had conscripted soldiers from off the farms. And so, in fact, the soldiers were farmers. And at a certain point in a world that was interconnected, if you conquer the neighboring land by killing all the soldiers, there'll be no one left to produce food when you take over that territory. So there's a lesson about the interconnectedness. We have to see all the implications of how we respond to conflict because that employee in the company you take over is somebody you're going to rely on to produce the products of value of the company that you just took over. We have so many examples from people in the workshops that we do where they have actually shown, we have a slide that shows farmer equals soldier with the circle and the line through it saying, kill a soldier, kill a farmer, who've used that single slide to go to two of their reports, say one in production and one in accounting, who are squabbling and fighting about when the report's going to happen and what's the format. And the leader showing them that, they need each other to be successful, so dealing with conflict has to has to include all the repercussions in order to have a meaningful, successful outcome, and that's the taking whole, which, you know, goes right back to um, the most iconic lines in the Art of War about you know the one hundred victories and. 100 battles isn't the most skillful. Subduing the other's military without battle is the most skillful. And that's, you know, the kind of seed syllable of the whole notion of taking whole. What is, yeah, what
2: does he, people love quoting that line, but I think it gets misunderstood. Because I I think it means like, when people read that as well, you got to figure out a way with duplicity and some intrigue to beat the guy without actually fighting But it sounds like there's something more going on there, the way you describe it in the book.
1: Yeah, I think the most common way for us to understand it nowadays is as things have gotten to be more complex, we have to look at solutions as being more systemic actions. So for example, you have a team of 10 to 15, and there's maybe a very problematic, challenging, difficult employee in that team. And the conventional way is to go at that challenge directly, whereas in terms of dealing with a complex system, every one of the people has relationships with each other. So dealing with the the shaping that team putting certain sort of bumpers and goals, mutual goals in line requires each one of those people to conform and work as part of the system. And that creates, you know, as we've seen so many times a situation where that difficult or problematic person sees that that's not the place for them. The team is going in a certain direction The company is going in a certain direction and they would be better off somewhere else. They decide to seek another place, could be another place within the company, another department, it could be another company altogether. But it's an example that comes right out of the employing sure, that is how to form and shape the ground of a situation to address a conflict or a difficulty It doesn't really require subterfuge, but it's kind of an indirect warfare, something that the art of war is very well known for, indirect warfare, but it's just another way of saying dealing with the situation systemically. So I think that the issue of subterfuge is really a misconception. It does derive from the way the art of war talks about deception, but you know, (laughs) deception is a whole range of behaviors and the extreme range that people often default to the kind that may be required in dealing with an enemy that means you lethal harm is really not the situation most of us find ourselves in in life so there are a lot of more plastic ways of dealing with systemic change that don't require those being you know trickier deceptive in a way that's calls into question one's moralistic behavior. I think that's an exaggeration and unnecessary.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it can mean something not as conniving as people would think. And people use it all the time without even knowing. So I I think the big takeaway from the view is so the view is just how you see the world. And I think important thing to understand is for Sun Tzu, you had to take the whole, you had to see the big picture and understand that you are part of that picture. So the decisions you make, you act on the world, but the world is going to act back on you. And That's uh, right. the world is going to change because of your decisions. And as a consequence of that, you have to update your view. So there's no, you really can't have a, a static world view. You can have guiding principles that can shape that big view, but you have to have some flexibility on you know, just updating your mental models when you see the world change. Well said. I think I think we basically what we did is we we went to Earth next, right? We kind of connected heaven to Earth, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. heaven is view, and Earth is the terrain, the situation, kind of the specifics, right? What we find ourselves, and that will dictate what we do in order to bring what about your action is yeah, bring about right. heaven basically right. yeah right. and an important part of this earth component and you dig in deep in the book is this idea of sure now it's pronounced it's spelled s-h-i-h i believe
1: it is it is that's the chinese right. the tra- transliteration. transliteration english but it is pronounced sure sure so this is a sure. really important concept because yeah. you really you you
2: hammer this home in the book so what is sure and why is it important to understand what sure is
1: well, it's a it's a natural outcome of seeing the world as an interconnected whole that parts move other parts. You know, it's a wonderfully rich and helpful idea and, and it's so rich it's why we didn't translate it in, in our in our book. You know, it's probably if you looked at the various translations of the Art of War, there are twenty different words used when sure appears, words like energy or configuration or advantage, or momentum, things that are familiar to us. But we just felt that to convey to the reader the richness of this concept, we would keep and retain its its Chinese and carry all those meanings forward. But fundamentally, Shira's talking about how any system has energy within it and a pattern of how that energy moves, and that energy can form a particular configuration of forces that affects effective power. So that's one way in which Schur describes a phenomenal world. And the text has wonderful images from the natural world that it uses. Things like how a meandering stream in the high mountain plains then turns into a tumultuous rushing river with such force that it can toss rocks about. That's one of the lines right out of the text. It tosses rocks about. And then that same water becomes a mass behind a dam, which is another way that power is accumulated in a certain, you know, configuration and can be released and focused and used for the leader. So so the examples of this for us, in addition to the physical world, are, you know, things like, you know, football is a perfect example of, trying to discern the weak spot on the opposition and amass the powers in the offense's configuration to strike that open and weak spot. You know, we have broad concepts like leverage or the tipping point popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, how alignment of forces within a situation make quick action possible that wasn't before One of our kind of thought partners in this is a politician on the national scale. And before finding the art of war, he used to talk about, is the situation ripe to take a particular action? Are the forces aligned? And now he talks to his staff in the language of the art of war. They talk about the sure. And looking at the configuration, depending on, you know, for example, at one point, not that long ago, maybe a little over a year, it was about when to start bringing the attack message about China into the national dialogue. Now, you know, there's been a long standing symbiotic relationship and close relationship, whether we've admitted it or not, in terms of. Are iPhones made in China? Just the simplest example. But at a certain point, it became political advantage, measured in how many dollars it would raise in fundraising, to start bashing the Chinese. But the calculation for the politicians was, if they came out too soon, and it wasn't the right timing, they wouldn't get the donations back from that line, so they had to kind of calculate when was the right moment. Now, that's, that's one possible way of sort of seeing about reading the situation, the alignment of the power in that situation. And as the text talks about in terms of employing sure, the good leader waits for the moment where the action is like rolling a round rock down a steep hill. Doesn't take much effort because that's what that rock wants to do, pulled down by gravity. So, sure, it's hard to translate, but it's the juice, you know, it's
2: the mojo. When I was reading the book and I saw sure, I was thinking momentum, you know, it's the momentum that shows up in the terrain, in the earth, you know, in the circumstances you find yourself in. And you really can't control it, but a good leader. You know, he can, he can nudge it. He, he, he can recognize it and, and be ready to take advantage of it when it does appear. So we've talked about heaven and earth or view and practice. Let's talk about action. And you say that before you take action or, you know, skilled action, it's important to engage in what you called knowing, which is a direct ongoing relationship in connection with the elements of your life. And we can know by using our senses and picking up on patterns, but there are challenges and limitations to knowing. And I think everyone, you know, everyone's heard about cognitive biases and how they can hinder our view. And if our view is clouded, then we can't take right action. What the art of war says is that victory is created long before the battle arises. So before we take skillful action, we have to try to get our thinking, you know, our view as clear as possible. But then I think, too, you know, action is also the way to figure out if your view is correct or not, right? It's like, it's feedback. That's right. It's a feedback loop, just yeah. like uh, Boyd talked about, too. Yeah. yeah. So, you, you take action to see if it's right, and it might be right, it might be wrong, and then you just take that feedback, and then you put it back into your view. You take a look at the terrain, the practices that you're using and then modify and then you try action again. And that was a good point you made through the way you learn about action, a really effective way to learn about action is looking at the stories of other individuals, leaders who took action. So you can see what worked and what didn't work for them. So that's one of the reasons I love reading biographies. It's a way to see action in action.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really great. I think, you know, there's nothing, nothing more powerful and we've learned this, then, then the story and narrative to move people. You know, oftentimes we're asked for examples about parts of uh, what we're right about in the rules of victory. And, you know, when you give an example, it's if it's not a story, it, and it winds up being a sort of one-directional didactic, almost solid lesson that somebody either has to repeat or they'll fail. And If you tell a story, a person can see themselves in that and they can see the possible skillful action that may arise for them in a similar situation. You know, one of the great lines people will pick up on in The Art of War is that victories cannot be transmitted in advance. So you can't tell somebody exactly what the best action in their story is going to be but a story shared as an example that can widen the possible options for another person. So it's about helping somebody discover insight rather than giving them a prescribed set of rules that they have to follow. So what's one thing you think listeners can start doing today
2: to better understand the art of war and start implementing this view,
1: practice, action mindset in their lives? You know, it's interesting you you put it that way. When when we do the workshops, usually they're two-day workshops we do in corporate settings. One of the first things we say is, you know, you're going to hear a lot of new terminology and ideas. Don't try to swallow it all. Just look for one thing, just one thing that speaks to you, that makes you go, hmm, that makes sense to me and I can see how it could have a positive benefit in my life. And that one thing, in fact, in terms of the way the art of war is structured, gives you access to the whole thing. I mean, we describe the text as as holistic and fractal, that it's so integrated, it's so repetitive, that any part of it that speaks to you gives you a real genuine entryway to all of the rest of it. So, you know, that's what we encourage people to do. It can be one of the maxims that you described. You know, we describe them as slogans because they're simple sentences that can trigger deep meaning and connection. You know, it could be something like soldier farmer that triggers the ability to take hold when you're confronted with a challenging situation rather than reverting to force, you know, to see how your solution can be inclusive of others' aspiration. So I think the other thing, you know, following along our discussion of how challenges and failed actions lead to more learning, I think one way of starting off with making the art of war more a genuine part of your life is, you know, whenever that moment arises for you, it could be an obstacle, a conflict, a seeming intractable situation. Be curious about your view. How are you seeing the situation? What limitations is your view putting on the situation? Just kind of um, almost a contemplative curiosity. And as long as that's done in a way that you have some kind of openness to the interconnectedness of the world around you, some kind of basic, you know, ongoing curiosity. And I think, you know, a sense of making friends with yourself, learning how you, you know, your emotions and your mind work, whatever means that is for you, then it's possible to, you know, to make a genuine connection, to start being part of the dialogue, as I talked about earlier, to start entering into this sort of lineage of people who are, looking to find a different way of dealing with conflict, a different way of dealing with obstacles as a leader. Well, Jim, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, there are two books. In fact, there's the Art of War, the Denma translation. And that, as I said, has a couple of background essays and some commentary. We do our own line-by-line commentary. You know, as, as I said earlier, a lot of the literature has commentary by generals throughout history. And uh, rather than reproduce those as most other translations, we just thought we'd add our perspective to what these lines in the text could mean for us in our lives in modern day. Uh, Then, of course, there's Rules of Victory, the book, and the Rules of Victory website, which presents both the way we approach the teaching of workshops and also the coaching that I do. And there's another resource out there that's not ours, but I would recommend for someone. Professor Andrew Wilson at the Naval Naval War College has a relatively short, I think it's called, great courses available through Audible. And he does a wonderful job of presenting what the art of war is uh, historically. He doesn't, go where we go in terms of how can you actually do this in your life? But that's not, you know, that's not his job, but it's a wonderful articulation of the meaning and the history and, and uh, very, very kind of user friendly. So that's, that's a resource that we recommend.
2: It, we had uh, Andrew on the podcast a while back. Oh, ago. you're kidding. Yeah. It's episode 664 masters of the art of war.
1: Oh, that's great. So you had this
2: conversation before. <laughs> a bit of it. We, you know, we talked about, you know, even Klaus Swiss. We talked about the Peloponnesian War. Thucydides. Yeah. So oh. Um, oh, that's so. terrific. Yeah. Well, Jim Gimmeon, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure for me. All the best. My guest today is Jim Gimmeon. He's the co-author of the book, The Rules of Victory. It's available on Amazon.com. You can find more information about the book at the website, rulesofvictory.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash artofwar, where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Every week, Kate and I work hard to distill interesting and actual insights from the authors and leaders in a variety of fields and present them in an engaging, fluff-and-filler-free episode that comes in under an hour. If you get something out of the show, please consider taking a minute to leave a review for it. It helps more people discover the AOM Podcast, and we greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial, Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android, iOS, and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. reminding you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.